We've got some good old state bread steak action coming up this weekend at the Big A. The Safe Florida Sandy on Saturday and the Rigo Park on Sunday. Don't forget that you can also still get that $200 match deposit bonus using the promo code Rewind. That's R-E-W-I-N-D. Terms and conditions do apply. Welcome to show 71 of Redboard Rewind, the first show of 2021. My name is Spencer Luganville, and today my special guest was the boss, PTF, as we go over and recap the late pick five from Aqueduct from Saturday. We do deeper dives on races seven, eight, and nine. And some angles that we talked about are daily double betting efficiency, finding good value on low-priced horses, why Munnings is one of my favorite wet track sires, and looking for horses trying something new in races with proven losers. This is a Redboard Rewind. It's the same old story. And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest. One of the best ways for me to start off 2021 is with the big man, PTF. How are you, PTF? Thank you, my friend. It's a pleasure to be here. I don't know at this point, you've had a few other returning guests, but I think given the fact that I was on the first several of these, I may be the most frequent guest in uh, Red by Redboard Rewind history. And if, it, if, if it's not me, I know I'm close. So that, that makes me feel good because I really admire the job you're doing here. And I've been sending people your way. And you know, we can see from the numbers, the show's been gathering momentum and honestly for people out there who are getting into the game and or have other friends who are getting into the game i i think you could do a lot worse as you're learning along the way than listening to this show every week and getting familiar with some of these key concepts in a way that uh fits the modern lifestyle of course we want you to read books especially ones that i've written but in terms of a podcast looking to really help people and take them from that beginning level to the novice and novice level to the expert level, I really think you're doing a great job, my friend. I appreciate that so much. I think, too, for me, just getting to learn from all my great guests, people that you've had me help get on the show. And, you know, I think it's you're in first place right now. Marshall Sterling close behind in second. He's been so busy with work. It's been hard to get him on the show. But just overall, just the great job. I mean, just Naira becoming my first sponsor, getting those signups for the year. It's just it's become like full circle for me and just showing me how much the hard work has paid off so far. You did a great job with that, and we should tell people that's another thing you do. Uh, you can do with your new friends and encouraging people to sign up and use that promo code Rewind because it really helps develop the show and uh, puts a little bit of well-deserved scratch in uh, in your pocket, and it's free money. It's not like you're doing anything cynical. Yeah. It's an opportunity for people to uh, sign up for their Naira Bets account and, and get a little bit of money to play with when they're, they're starting out. So we encourage our listeners on all the shows, but especially Redboard Rewind, to be ambassadors as well to help us keep things moving and grooving. So I guess a good question to kind of start off the show for me is, Wintertime at Aqueduct, a lot of people that I knew growing up would just pass it and say, wait for Belmont and Saratoga, but I tend to really like Aqueduct in the winter. Like you say, kind of lean and mean. It's just there are no more turf racing now at, as of right now. So to me, it's just learning your dirt racing form and learning how to just become better on a certain specific circuit. And I think if I remember, you, you kind of like the Aqueduct time at this point as well. 
I love it. And the it is true. There's something about the lean and mean day that I really love, as opposed to 37 minutes between races at Saratoga, which mm-hmm. just gets to be, you know, just in terms of your life, it, it's tricky. It's a lot easier to devote uh, four hours on a on a Saturday or, or a Thursday and be able to get the whole card in. So that's one one silly little thing. And for those of us who like dirt racing, um, you know, I like turf racing as well, but I certainly feel more confident a lot of the time being increasingly a selection oriented player and being able to predict what's going to happen in dirt races. There's, there's a lot of good stuff going on and trends you can pick up on. And I've been a big fan of the aqueduct winter meet for a number of years. And my, my ROIs show it. It's, it's a, it's a meet where I've done pretty well over the years. Do you also feel that kind of Saratoga and Belmont, obviously with you running so many shows, that it sometimes just gets so hard to just focus in, especially at Saratoga, even for me when I was doing, you know, two shows, maybe doing Del Mar, Saratoga, I was like, there were some days where I was like looking up and it's 10 minutes to the first race and I'm like, oh, cool, I'm just opening up my PPs for the first time. <laughs> it is very easy to get overwhelmed. And, and it's funny, there's different kinds of study that you do based on what your goals are and what type of year it is. And in Saratoga specifically, it's just tough because so much of what I'm wanting to do up there is to play, to have fun, and to be out with my friends. And I will way too frequently end up gambling when I haven't done the 100% job just because of, like you say, all the stuff we have going on. But it's something you really have to be conscious of, especially if you want to step up your game and start betting more or more meaningful money or even try go to the next level and try to do betting horses as some way that you're going to make part of your living. You need to find ways to guard your time and make sure that you're not only able to do something pretty close to at least the 80 percent job. You know, no, no quick capping. You got to do enough handicapping. You got to guard the time that you know what the composition of the fields is going to be from when those scratches come in to the first race. And you've, you've just got to be able to find time to focus, not just on the handicapping part of things, but the betting side of the equation as well. Having been a part of Saratoga for the last couple of years, I never thought I'd miss it as much as this last year with nobody obviously being allowed to be there. JK being the special one, being able to be there most of the days. It just, to me, just felt like kind of a void over my summer, having to go to work, Obviously, at Target as a personal shopper, trying to make that extra money and not being able to go there, it just kind of was like what I would do. And now, obviously, with the NHC now going to be Traverse Day weekend, I was going to possibly even try to go for the NHC this year. And now I want nothing to do with it because I can't see myself missing another Traverse Day weekend up at the spa. I'm the same way. I've been to the NHC every year since 14, whichever Jose Arias' year mm-hmm. was. I think it was 14. And it was something that I thought there was a chance I would do uh, as long, you know, as long as possible. And being Travers Weekend, that's going to be tough. Saratoga was weird. One thing that helped me a little bit was having so much work between mm-hmm. doing the expert picks for the ADW that doesn't sponsor this show. So uh, we, we won't mention them on here. You can hear about that <laughs> elsewhere on the network and doing all the work for Sky Sports Racing and then just our usual podcasting. I was actually able to really focus on work well, just selfishly. But of course, as a racing fan, there was a tremendous hole in the summer and fingers crossed. We'll see. Obviously, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but there is a chance that we can get our Saratoga this year and that it may be a party like never before, Spencer. And we'll have to take advantage of that 
and have a bunch of events and do a lot of cross promotion between other shows on the network and Redboard Rewind and make sure we get a chance to to see all the, the fans because that's one thing I really missed at, mm-hmm. at Saratoga, the chance to be able to interact with listeners and or viewers or you know, people from people from wherever and get to make our little community and have our hangouts in the in the paddock bar and, and do all that stuff and I mean, I, I can't I don't want to think about it too much because it makes me sad how much I, I missed it this year. Professionally, I was able to distract myself, but personally, it was a blow. So for this podcast, we kind of decided we're going to do the recap of what you and Nick Tamara had talked about uh, on Friday going over the late pick five. We're going to go over races seven, eight, nine in a little bit bigger depth. But let's kind of talk about your pick five strategy going into cards that kind of have shorter fields obviously the stake race that day only had five in it so you're kind of looking to just be like a single and done with and try and not spread too much even though that stake race did seem to have two or three horses that could possibly win that race i did end up trying to narrow down there it started off for me we talk about this a lot and this is this card's a good example of it that opinions in a race can mean a couple of different things they can be hey i have this one narrowed down i have this one singled i have these positive opinions or it could be the opposite, where you have a negative opinion. and, and or, or even if it's a horse you recognize as a contender, and I have to say, when the, the betting came up for race number five on Saturday, uh, the, the betting was screaming. That creative style was live for, uh, for, for Kendrick Carmouche uh, and Danny Gargan. And Gargan had been uh, heating up and... But I was my thought was this. I'm going to I'm not going to play any defense here. I really thought that uh, that Ektabar was a, a good value alternative and as creative style in the end ends up going off basically odds on. I thought the value in the pick five, the way I approached it was to just go with my three horses, um, which were Ektabar as a on top. There was a big question with him given that the good races had been earned in the care of Navarro. But I just figured, hey, as a horse player, this horse dropping um, a potential pace advantage, hey, I'm going to mostly pin my colors to that mast. I liked hardcore folklore as a, as a potential backup, and I liked Lucky Ramsey quite a bit. I mean, Lucky Ramsey, I got more and more interested in as the price was uh, drifted up over six to one, because I really thought that Lucky Ramsey would be the best closer. So I just used AB type strategy and, and went pretty thin and was standing completely against creative style who went on. And, you know, for me, this was just a classic. They knew horse who took all the money, showed more speed than expected and absolutely stuffed me in a locker winning easily. But I didn't, I didn't worry about it too much. I was, I was very much prepared to, to, to come back and play the pick four. And even if I'd been alive after this leg, I probably would have come back and played the pick four, but that's how it, that's how it got started for me on Saturday. I will say this. It was also a little bit different in the morning when we started to see that it was going to be a muddy track. I know a lot of people say, once he's throwing that extra variable of not have being a being a fast track that a lot of people skip the day or they don't play as much. And I don't mind the muddy day. I think it's interesting. I think that there's a lot more betting mishaps with the public, not so and also with us as well, but just sometimes the lines can just be made a little bit differently wrong here or there. And you had said you were coming back and playing the pick four either or how many times do you think when you're playing a pick five sequence do you play the pick four no matter what? 
Not that often, honestly. And part of that just has to do with in recent years, this is anecdotal, but in New York, I've noticed the pick fours being much more efficient. In other words, very rarely do I look back at the end of the day and see a pick four play where I um, I say, oh my gosh, that paid so much more than it should have. Mm-hmm. I do swear I see that uh, more in the pick five than I do the pick six or the pick four. So the late pick five typically will get an outsized uh, chunk of my bet. But the existence of the existence of the pick four here and knowing I was opposing this even money favorite who might slap me upside the head, it, it was it became a very comfortable backup plan. And, and I kind of got away from doing this, the level of ticket writing for the pick five that I might have done already thinking about the pick four. But like so many things in racing, it's all it's all situational. For me, I had actually liked the number nine creative style, 53% off the claim for Danny Gargan. Uh, Kendrick, congrats on his first Aqueduct riding title meet. It just, for me, was always these two at Aqueduct, and no one really realized how good Kendrick was. Now he actually has a riding title under his belt. Lucky Ramsey, 25 for 50, lifetime in the exacta. Kind of hard to beat that as a claiming horse, and... I had liked hardcore folklore at first, and then kind of looking back, and as we have talked about, you know, reading books, there are more winners dropping in class than rising in class, and this horse had won the last two races at 10K and was now jumping up, and I think facing two very, very difficult horses in the number five, Lucky Ramsey and number nine, Creative Style, so I ended up taking this horse off my ticket and just played the five and nine in doubles, trying to uh, hammer into a horse into the next race, but with the number nine, Creative Style, I had made it through in my double and you unfortunately had to restart in the pick four what did you like in race six here pete it was a three-year-old maiden specialty going six furlongs on the dirt i had kind of liked the number one jill's a hot mess yes i was all about uh, jill's a, a hot mess and pressing there because just sort of obvious handicapping points having run well off the layoff and a forward move just seemed to be coming but on paper, I was also very interested in Breakfast at Bonnie's, even just on the paper because of the success that these Laubons have had. Uh, and an 80K Laubon particularly, very, very interesting. That's a that's, that's a pretty price. Remember, Laubon's become very trendy. And obviously not trendy. It, he's had so much success, he's become just getting his due. But uh, for, for uh, one in May to sell for 80, that... that that gave me that made my antenna stand on end, and then of course with the horse taking as much money as she did, um, and then right, I mean we I mentioned Gargan heating up. It just it seemed like these were you use these two. I'm going to use these two. I'm going to use them equally, and we're gonna and we're gonna go forward from here. It was an interesting race for me. I was actually handicapping with Sabrina. She actually loved the number six breakfast at Bonnie. It's mostly for Laoban is also twenty percent on the wet dirt. And now has done so well as a New York sire. They're moving him to Kentucky, I believe, now to get some better mares. I just, Jill's a hot mess, showing speed. They thought that she was so good out of that maiden special weight to put her into the stake race and ran okay at 13-1. to 1, Obviously lost to Laban and Prayer, who was a very good horse in her own right. I just thought that the price would somewhat be right here. And I was obviously, the way I constructed my doubles, I had used a lot more of the winner going into her, into her and I had used Ramsey a little bit less, but being six to one, I was still going to kind of end up getting that right price. And just 
seeing how the race had unfolded, I uh, I was wrong, and Sabrina was laughing in my face as I got stuffed in the <laughs> locker. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. A seven seven dollar uh, Danny Gar- seven dollar one dollar uh, Danny Gargan daily double uh, ends up ends up not being not being too bad at all. Just to quickly go back to the last race, mm-hmm. were you less interested, or did you change the way you played with creative style being that? even money price or were you were, did you actually think that those were representative of the of the chances and how did that affect how you played the double when i see a, a horse with a trainer sat like 53 percent for a trainer that i know is a good type of claiming trainer like gargan is and getting carmouche on i just ended up if i was you know playing let's say 20 dollars, i would have probably played it 15 dollars with the winner in the last and then five with the ramsey horse that way I'm still, you know, going to make my money back with a horse that's po- supposedly going off at six to one. Was probably going to be shorter in the doubles, but I just thought that, you know, a three to one x value was kind of what I was looking for. I like the fact very much that you're conscious of uh, what your bankroll is and making sure you're putting it where you can get some more efficiency in your wager. I think the double is a great and very underrated bet, not least because with probable pays and other wagering tools, you can you can know have a pretty darn good idea anyway of what your total investment is going to come back. So many people, certainly in the pick three and higher, they're just kind of guessing and going by feel. But in that double, you can go there and you can say, oh, look, this 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 double combo is going to pay seven to one. I think that's great value. Or you could look at your bet in aggregate and say, okay, I'm investing 20. My lowest return is 50. My highest is, but that's the combination I'm not crazy about. And meanwhile, I've got the upside of it paying say a hundred. If it comes the way you want, those are very valuable tools to have in the toolbox. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to friends who they'll go five or six deep in a race, but they'll leave off two or three that are, you know, 20 plus to one but their figures kind of muddle up with the others that they have as backups and i'm like you could easily just go all here and trust me i hate the all button but if you're five or six deep already don't leave off two or three that kind of equal the same as your other backups because then when they hit and you miss that 25 to one would make it a square idea of why you're going six deep instead all you have is these eight nine seven to one shots that all the computer players are going to have anyway it's tricky. I mean, a lot of times when you have when you like that many horses, it means you don't really have an opinion and you should never um, underrate the value of passing in a spot like that. But let's say you're in a race where you like six horses, but you really don't like the two or three at the top of the market. In that case, if you were to really look at the at the math, at the risk and reward, you're probably right. If you assuming you have a strong opinion in the next leg a couple of extra dollars can at least get you your money back or more and isn't going to really affect what you're risking. So you got to be smart about it. But I do think there are times where it is worth doing that when you have strong opinions elsewhere. When you have strong opinions elsewhere, you do not want to get beat in the spread race. I couldn't agree with you more. Let's kind of jump into our first race of the podcast. We're going to dive deep. It was race number seven. It was a 40,000 N2L claimer going one mile on the dirt. Somewhat of a short field in here with two horses that the public seem to just love equally on the line. What would you like in here, Pete? Yeah, I thought Perceived was a super attractive single, or single A anyway, in the pick four and pick five. This is another one where the stats explain to you just how good Chad Brown is in these situations. And then Nick Tamaro made the excellent, excellent point on the show. He went back and manually 
filter the Chad Brown dropper numbers to look take Saratoga out of the play because of the different dynamics mm-hmm. that are going on up there and just look at him with these type of droppers at Aqueduct and Belmont and the numbers improved the already terrific numbers improved another 10% or whatever it was and so that was one thing and then there was just the logic and this was a point actually uh, Sean Clancy I'll give him credit from this is horse racing point out another reason to know if you follow the game how live perceived was there's a sale coming up the dispersal from the estate of Paul Pompa Jr. great thoroughbred owner sadly recently passed but this horse was going to be going through a sales ring very soon so there's really no reason for Chad Brown to to do anything but be super aggressive with perceived uh, because he's going to be losing the horse he keeps him in the barn he's going to be losing him anyway so even though you're risking him for a claiming tag you might as well um, go for it and, and try to make a little bit more purse money. So just the more I looked at this race, the more all arrows pointed to perceived. And I would have made perceived on my line more than 50% to win, e- even money or less, even though, you know, first line isn't a, isn't a bad horse. I mean, that was certainly a meaningful drop and there was certainly excuses that you could conjure for first line. But sometimes horses like first line who have all these excuses, it it's not just bad luck. You know, there, there, there's a character flaw. Not not every, sometimes a bad break isn't just, oh, the horse broke bad, let's upgrade. It's, well, something's going wrong in the, in the horse's form that the horse isn't breaking well. I just, I didn't trust first line at all at the price that he was. And I felt like he, the more, the closer we got to post time, the more I like perceived is what I'm trying to say. When I looked at this race, I said if perceived as anywhere, even close to even money, uh, as Marshall Sterling says, back up the Brinks truck. To, <laughs> to me, it just every other horse in this race, first line had broke uh, his maiden at a mile and an eighth, which to me is, you know, obviously it's a longer distance, but I don't like them cutting back to a mile as much. And winning by a neck, he won life and death. It was 12 to one. So it was kind of an upset in that race as well. Then you go in the gym, Dandy gets blown out. Then the two allowance races, not not doing so well. Everyone knows the note of magic that's happened over the last six months and how good he is as a trainer. Then you look at Jerusalem Gates, Linda Rice, just a bunch of blue fractions in there if you're using the Timeform US pace figures. I just didn't want anything to do with that one. And I'm like, okay, so perceived to be four to five. I'll have to figure out if I really want to make a wager. I see eight to five, I said, I just don't understand how, like we just talked about, Chad Brown dropping. I guess seeing a maiden special weight dropping into a claimer can be a negative, but when you use something like Formulator, which I use every day, and you, oh, Chad's 37%, almost a positive ROI. Well, now I'm not so scared anymore, and just, this is the type of horse that when you look at creative style from the first race we talked about, is this good value? No. Was the horse needed to be used? Yes. Perceived here is good value as a short-priced horse. Yeah, it's it's wonderful when it works out like that. Too often you have to sort of grit your teeth and, and bear it if you're going to use these shorties. And the, the, in this case, I uh, I was happy to I kept the picks going, but also uh, did get involved in the in the doubles as well going forward, just because I like the price so much. Probably, um, well, we'll, we'll, we're we're going to play this race, so we'll talk about that after. Let's see if it's one of the droppers or the Chad Brown maiden winner right now shadow caster there's jerusalem gates and rushing up the inside first line jerusalem gates has the lead six does now moved up 
into second. Colomi Pazzi on the outside is in third. First line along the inside is fourth. Shadow Caster and the favorite perceived are fifth and sixth. The gap of three to Diane's impossible in seventh. And it's a big break back to Kingfish. And even further back is Fotis. Opening quarter of 23 and 2. Jerusalem Gates. First line has made his way off the inside. Color Me Potsy is there, as is six, though. So the four of them have a length and a half on Perceived, who's back in fifth. Then we come back to Diane's Impossible and Shadow Caster, a long way back to Kingfish and Fotis. 47 for the half. Fields midway on the far turn. Jerusalem Gates. Jose Lascano just took like a peek back, and he looked to his inside. No one there. Outside's Colomy Pazzi and Perceived. Swings into action. Three wide as the field makes their way to the quarter pole. Jerusalem Gates trying to hold off. Perceived through three quarters in 113 and one. Perceived takes the lead off the turn under our cancel who's looking for three on the day. And Perceived begins to draw away. Perceives in front by two. Jerusalem Gates going to try to hold off. And inside running Diane's impossible for the minor spoils. But they pass the 16th pole and it's all Perceived. Perceived comes down to the line. A six length winner. Diane's impossible up the inside. Got second from Jerusalem Gates. It got tight for fourth between Fotis and Colomy Pazzi. The final time for the mile was 139 and two. And the number four perceived does get it done, paying 520 with an 80 buyer. It's just one to me, Pete, where the buyers almost also, you know, make the claim. This horse had run consistently around that 80 buyer number, and the rest had to improve off of a drop. And just like you had said. Sometimes stumbling at the break isn't just cross it out. And I'm sure I'll talk about that with Penny later in my podcast with him as well. It all matters is what's the logic? Is the horse just stumbling bad now they're dropping because they don't think he can win at that level? No, there might have been something wrong with the horse. And so they said, okay, we'll put him in for 40 and see what happens. In truth, he'd had those breaking problems chronically. And that is something that Mike Maloney talks about in betting with an edge. There are any number of horses who... They they don't just have that problem once they have it every time. It's a I mean I think the best way to put it is it's it's not a bad trip. It's a character flaw, and and I think that was uh, I think that was the case there. As for the way that the race played out, you know once again veers in at the start and then has to play catch up. That's so tough in a race that you already are guessing is going to be kind of fast as it was uh, coded to be a fast pace on time form US. So. I don't want a horse that doesn't typically break well, whose way to win is presumably going to be on the lead in a race with plenty of speed. What were your thoughts on the second place horse, Diane's Simple? Simple. Diane's Impassable. Yes. Um, I mean, I was not clever at all enough to come up with Diane's Impassable, a 30-to-1 shot. But I will say this. you, you There was a fast pace, and, and he's a closer. So... You know, that alone for underneath in exotics, I, I could tell you I could tell you a story about if you if and also this was just a race where I didn't really care for the middle of the market. Again, first line I listed second in my picks, but that was expecting a much better price. I didn't trust Jerusalem Gates one bit um, coming coming back, even though it was theoretically a drop. I just I wasn't sure what kind of trip he was going to get. It just, it seemed like the kind of race where a bunch of the typically 
a lot of the times the speeds are going to be your better horses. Or horses are going to be in the top half of the field. They're going to be your better horses. And if you see a race where you think they're going to go kind of fast, the chance of the race falling apart and having the theoretically slower horses run into the money, that just that becomes a real that becomes a real possibility. So I was not don't get me wrong, I was not at all smart enough to uh, to put this horse in being claimed from uh, Rudy. But if you had made the case to me, what about this one? I would have said, sure, for underneath, could come running late. I feel that a lot of people, when they get that lone, hard single on top, like perceived, okay, I have to find that long shot to come in second. But a lot of times they're not smart enough to find the 32-to-1 shot. They may play the 15-14, 8-to-1 shot and miss. I feel like in this type of race, when you have such a good conviction of how good perceived should be in this field, just worry about a nice big win bet, possible doubles. This is not where I think I would get involved vertically. I may be 80-20 vertical to horizontal. You know, one out of five times I might try and find that second place horse. I just didn't really like anything else underneath. And I just thought Perceived was low and away at 8-5, to going to just be one that can be a daybreaker for me. I see a little case you could make just looking at the Timeform US home screen and going back. And looking at the, the the little running style marker on the preview page that gives the 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 quick and dirty, they pick a pace line and they give you a quick and dirty rating for early speed, which the pace projector is built on, and then they also give you the little late pace guess. Uh, by far, the highest rated horse for late pace was perceived, but just doing a little bit of armchair redboarding race design. It, it makes sense to me that perceived would make that winning move and blow up various other horses that were, that mm -hmm. were in the Vanguard in this fast pace, have them that they'd be running backwards and, and guess who the second best late pace horse is, at least according to the, the, the preview page on time form us. Diane's impassable. There you go. Let's move on to our next race, race number eight. It was the hundred K Gravesend six and a half furlongs on the dirt short field but not short on talent. Lots of interesting angles and ways you go in here. I stunk in this race. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I just, I got so fixed in to stand the man. Um, I just, I thought that that was a really conservative ride. It was a really conservative ride the last day. And I was just envisioning that he'd get more of a positive ride today. And I just thought he was going to take absolutely all the beating and that if he lost, he would lose to, to my boy Tate. And we talked about, you know, Nick made the point he, that he, he was going to use all five in here and even said the words uh, about the eventual winner. Would you really be surprised if the eventual winner gets the job done in here? But I, I got too narrowly locked in and, and, and my doubles and my, um, my doubles and the, the existing pick four, they, they, they were fours and fives everywhere on the tickets. It was just, for me, it was a weird race. The muddy surface, I will uh, give total credit to Clay Sanders, talks about Munnings as just one of the better wet track surface horses. And just, I wanted to use P Pete's play call. I didn't know how I wanted to use exactly yet. Happy Farm, the number one, coming out of the Jason Service Barn race one time last year in the Tom Fool and ran well. And now he's in for Linda off of a very long break. I wanted nothing to do with this horse. Obviously, some service horses have come back to run well. It just seemed to me like with the long break that it was, this horse at seven might not come back the same. So for me, that was an easy cross out there. My boy Tate 
to me, was a very good state-bred horse, and obviously four for four on a wet track is nothing to scoff at. It's just, and I use this line with from Andy Serling a bunch, the best buyer on a wet track was a 99. The best on fast dirt was a 96. I'm not saying that the horse isn't better on wet or a fast track. It just seems to me that maybe a lot of other horses that he raced against might be weaker on a wet track, whereas he kind of stays the same. Everyone thinks that, oh, a horse has to be very at a certain surface. A lot of what is that they're kind of even on every surface and other horses just don't show up as well. I agree with that. I think it's kind of overrated in a lot of ways to, I mean, I'm, I'm totally down with what you said and Clay and, and Marshall talked all the time about Munnings on the wet and it has become an auto use in, not in this instance, but uh, the kind of thing that I would normally give extra credit to. I just, I made up my mind too quickly about this race, frankly, but in general, I'm not a, I'm not like, really that worried about the wet track stuff unless it's a horse i have a real suspicion isn't going to handle it i think a lot of the time it a lot of the time the the form is is the form translates especially if you're talking about with with uh with speedier horses but as you were talking about happy farm it really made me frustrated about not at least backing up with pete's play call because like you no interest in happy farm had no idea if he was still a horse. Guessed he probably wasn't. And in, you're dealing with a horse that was really bet. I mean, mm-hmm. th- uh, ends up going off at uh, 3.45 on the dollar. And this is a really interesting thing. And, and it'll probably keep coming up with some of these. It comes up with the, the ex-service Navarro runners. But it almost comes up anytime a horse has left the barn of, a, of one of these really good claiming trainers who, you know, has crazy, almost too good to be true success and then is going into another barn. You almost have to look, you, you can look at your pace projector and you, I'm looking back at it here and I'm um, seeing happy farm rated to be clear with a pace that favors a horse on or near the lead. But it almost pays with a horse like this to look at it again and just visually take happy farm out of the race because you don't try just like i said with those you know going from the miracle worker trainer back to the the regular trainer they might what they are now doesn't necessarily resemble what the pps are saying and the market especially the computer players they're much more apt to be betting just what the paper says and if you take them out of the equation what do you see it would still be a favoring on or near and uh, guess who'd be three lengths clear Pete's play call. Again, I I love this exercise because I'm going back now and, and finding multiple horses here that I was not smart enough to find on the day that I do think if I'd grinded on a little bit more of these races, I would have come up with. And, and indeed, uh, yeah, Pete's play call looked much, much better in the context of it's not the same happy farm anymore. And I think pretty much anybody who'd played the races more than a handful of times would have said, there's way more than a non-zero chance that Happy Farm isn't going to show up at all. For Pete, it was the number four, My Boy Tate, and the five, Stan the Man. For me, it was a win, place, and show bet for Pete's play call. Let's see who wins the Gravesend right now. Happy Farm, there's My Boy Tate. Pete's play call between those three. Three lengths in front of drafted, and Stan the Man's allowed to trail the field. Happy Farm has asserted himself from his rail draw, and he's a length in front of Pete's play call, who's in second. Two lengths back to my boy Tate, who's third. Drafted along the inside is fourth. The trailer is Stan the Man. Four lengths covers the five geldings through an opening quarter of 23 seconds flat. It's Happy Farm. He's a half length in front of Pete's play call. 
a length back. And my boy Tate is three wide in third, drafted fourth along the inside. Stand the man a little bit closer now, maybe two and a half, three lengths, covers them as the field is midway on the far turn. Pete's play call put his head in front of Happy Farm through a half of 46 and four. And Pete's play call takes them past the quarter pole in front. Happy Farm tries to battle back along the inside. My boy Tate drafted between far outside. Stand the man is revving up now. Pete's play call pass is the eighth pole, a length and a half in front. Jorge Vargas lets him drift, and now he straightens him out. Stand the man, a final run at him, past the 16th pole. Pete's play call, going to take the Gravesend. He won it by two. Over Stand the man. It got tight for third between drafted and my boy Tate. Final time for the six and a half furlongs was 117 and three. And the number three, Pete's play call does get it done, paying a solid 10-20 with a 97 buyer. Uh, funny story with Stan the Man, who ran a good second. I remember being on an airplane back when he was running high 90s as a maiden, and I kept ended up betting him to win. He kept running second. I said, this horse will never result to anything. Now he's seven, <laughs> having won 500,000. <laughs> it's it's a hard game, you know. Never, it, it's, a, it, it's kind of a cruel – it probably comes off cruel in, in the modern world, but it's so appropriate – to what you just said and it is an actual old expression i did i did not make this up and i i did not i do not necessarily subscribe to the theory but there is the old axiom never knock a horse until he's dead yeah. and <laughs> the man proved that to you he i'll tell you this he did run well what did he do what did he do figure wise as opposed to his like like tell me his last three figures he was a it was 92 92 94 so kind of right there in that nice little low 90 buyer range Okay, so he ran his race. I was just beginning to wonder if the absolute lack of speed he seems to have now. See, I was all about, you know, trying to low-key blame Cancel for being too <laughs> passive in the previous race. But now seeing it here, it didn't seem tactical. It seemed like he was trying to get the horse in the race. He just took forever to respond. That can be a worrisome sign sometimes with these horses when they just lose that. They lose early interest. You know, I think of Arrogate as a classic example who sort of tipped his hand that maybe he was going in the wrong direction when he just kind of lost all his early speed. But anyway, I don't know. I I'll, I'll probably won't upgrade or downgrade. I'll just evaluate Stan the man on the bare form. But I will say this. It is tricky betting deep closers in, in very short fields. Again, with Pete's play call is why I didn't really bring this up in the pre-talk, but having been claimed by Rudy off of John Toscano, obviously once you win for 62, there's not really another place to go but a listed stake, but just having that time off from November till now and then having the you know guys to jump the horse into the stake race, it was a short field. I think Munnings was just kind of that little cherry on the top for me. I might have even played the horse if it was a fast dirt track as well. I just, Rudy jumping horses up, I think he's one of the few trainers for me that I will take an extra hard look at jumping up, whereas most of the times I like to look at droppers. Rudy seems to always find the one or two a week or within a month that hit off at a nice $10, $15 mutual. I think it's a good point. And for me, at the end of the day, the reason I feel irritated about this was this was a good pace play if you hated Happy Farm, which mm -hmm. which I did. So that was... Uh, and I say hated. I think I still like out of default de facto um, listed Happy Farm third. So I shouldn't say I hated, but you. I'll say this: you knew there was a giant chance of getting a no show. I mean, if the old Happy Farm showed up, obviously that would be a totally <laughs> different story. But 
you know, you, you just that was not really very realistic scenario, knowing what we know. And so it, it's interesting. You sometimes have to when you're looking at these races, you have to hold these multiple thoughts in your mind about the different contingency plans based on sort of an underrated thing in handicapping, evaluating a runner, not just trying to handicap their chance, but handicap how volatile the situation is mm-hmm. based on these horses and then do the secondary level of factoring that into race design and, and, and internal pace matchups, which is something that, that I love to do. So with that in mind, Pete's play call should have been the third horse I used. Let's move on to the last race. It was race number nine, a 16,000 N2L claimer going one mile on the dirt. And I know you talked about this with Nick, but let's talk about the, newly married jockeys and the coupled entry rule that has me scratching my head at this point. It's not good. It's not good. I mean, the problem is, you know, people always, the knee jerk is to blame Naira and it's the rules that racing is governed Mm -hmm. under are not Naira rules. They're New York state rules and the gaming commission, extremely political body, not easy to get things changed. And there's been this very long ignored rule. You read this rule and it's supposed (laughs) to also have parents and children coupled and all these things that you, you know, you don't, you don't see. And I think it's supposed to count for, I think it's supposed to count for trainers. Anyway, I should, I should go back and double check that before I repeat it again. But the rule was unearthed and I think there's probably going to be a lot of people working to change it because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't jibe with the, the spirit of the rest of the sport. And you have stewards whose job it is to uh, ascertain if there is funny business, collusive behavior going on, and, and to deal with it that way. So this rule, it's theoretically supposed to protect betters, but it just makes it a raw deal for everybody involved. I couldn't agree with you more. What would you like here in the race, Pete? I thought it was. I thought it was a little bit open. I ended up pressing. It's kind of funny. I uh, I, I ended up in in the picks, pressing Bronxville and Beachside. Bronxville, I thought was a, a best of speed candidate in this spot. Flow move up. Um, I thought that Beachside was interesting as well. Horse who uh, needed the drop. I thought and. I thought I just thought it was an interesting little pattern where first start off the claim was a six day wheel back. So I I was giving that against better. So I was almost treating this like uh, like a first off the claim um, for uh, for this barn. And I was thinking that that there was a chance that much better things would happen. And then Nick made such a good case on the show for super wicked charm. I sort of deferred to him and and then in terms of backups, I was originally looking, and I think I even listed in the in the in the money picks about uh, two horses that were going from turf to dirt. There was Tiergen, um, the the Fleet Alex Colt for Hibiscus Mott and Dylan Davis, and then there was Doubly Blessed. But uh, the more I thought about Doubly Blessed, now Doubly Blessed had had. Ample opportunity. Seven career starts, never on the dirt. And my first thought was that this horse was going, I thought it was a likely winner as the presumptive best closer using that quick and dirty trick again with Time Form US 94 rated late in a race that projected to have a fast pace. This was a horse I wanted to use. I ended up backing off of because I was assuming I didn't do a full value line for the race, but in my brain, 
if I'd made a value line, I probably would have had doubly blessed at seven to two ish. And I was thinking it was going to be shorter than that. So I just had as a backup. Now the picks were, the picks were gone anyway, but as, as race time progressed, I was really surprised to see this horse at nine to two. I think when Nick and I talked about it on the show, we were both kind of leaning to the idea that this horse was here just because just taking a shot because there's no, not good enough to ship out of town for turf and already here. Um, but you know, you're looking again on, on, on breeding empire maker and, uh, and a Bernardini dam, the, the, the lack of money at, at nine to two would, you, you could almost, you could argue that it was a negative thing. I think at the end of the day, it was a, a wide open race and I was happy going in with key horses at eight and 14 to one and, uh, hoping to, hoping to catch lightning in a bottle here, get a little lucky. I did like your pick of the number nine beachside. I just thought that if the horse would go up in price, ended up going off at eight to one, was going to be one I had to use. Uh, Tiergen, I thought was going to be interesting when he went off as the three to one favorite, was one that I was going to try and avoid. The number eleven, uh, doubly blessed, just for me. And this comes from a Mark Kramer book, and I forget which book it is exactly. I'll try and remember it and tweet it out later. He makes odd and value lines based on what type of races, but not as an allowance claiming or a stake race, but he kind of names the races. So one could be the vulnerable favorite race. And this is kind of how we start your, your odds line. And so for this race, it would be called the lesser of evil race. And the example in the book he used was there was six or seven horses that had raced at a certain class level and, you know, became the proven losers or, you know, had raced 25 times each on dirt and had barely won. And now this horse is trying dirt for the first time. And I just, that spot from that book just clicked in my brain. I said, I'm not going to let Mike Maker beat me with a horse that we had. You had said nine to two might be like not the good price. And I remember from our first ever episode of Redboard Rewind when we talked about David Donk horse as a first-time starter on the turf that went off at nine to one that actually ended up looking like he was taking money. I thought staying at the morning line at nine to two, this horse maybe was secretly taking money. And Interesting. Just for me, I didn't want to get beat and see Mike Maker put up with an eleven-dollar mutual underneath. So what did you end up doing? How did you play it? So for me, I ended up just using uh, the number 11 and the number 9 in exactas, and I put a nice little win bet on the 11. For me, I had my my keys, uh, and then I saved in exactas 11-5 um, with 8-9. Uh, Let's see if we can get out a winner here at the Big A right now. And they're off in the finale. Not the best of beginnings for I See the Stars or my Amon Gina. There goes Unbridled John to the lead. Entry mate Freedom Force along the inside moves into second. Implied Volatility is in third. We come back to Rodolfo's in fourth. I Saw It All moves up between horses in fifth. Mental, mental Model is sixth. Doubly Blessed is seventh. Bronxville on the outside is a three lengths back to Tiergen, who's in ninth. We come back to Beachside, just passed by Super Wicked Charm. Glenn likes gin. I see the stars and the trailer is my Amon Gina 23 and 3 for the opening quarter as Unbridled John's on a length and a half lead. Bronxville has moved up into second. Between horses as I saw it all. Doubly blessed is four wide and moves into fourth. Implied volatility. Tiergen on the outside moves up as well. Freedom force and mental model. The half went in 47 and 1. Unbridled John's on a two length lead. 
doubly blessed, is moving up into second past. I saw it all. Tiergen swings into action in third along the inside. Implied volatility. Super wicked charms coming from the back as the field makes their way down to the quarter pole. Unbridled John trying to take him start to finish, but doubly blessed rolls on by, and doubly blessed grabs the lead right there at the 316th pole. Tiergen is in the center of the course. He's moved into second and past the eighth pole. Doubly blessed is five in front. Tiergen is going to round out the exacta, but doubly blessed going to give Manny Franco two on the day. He won the finale by three and a half. Tiergen finished second. And the number 11, doubly blessed, paid $11 with an 82 buyer. Just a really solid price when I look back at, like I said, that book example. Obviously one for you, Pete, that you thought maybe the price just wasn't fully there. Well, no, I I think I might have misunderstood. I I I was happy. I thought mm. this horse was okay. going to get hammered, and I ended up I ended up liking more because we were getting a, a halfway decent mutual, possibly because the entry caught so much money and uh, the five caught so much money. I thought I thought the price was good. So it's interesting. You thought the horse was taking sneaky money. I thought the horse was a little dead, but that doesn't really bother me at this at this level. But the bigger takeaway for me was why didn't I, I, I wish I was a trifecta player. You know, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm much more inclined to bet win and use the exacta as a saver. I'm not looking to like kill the exacta. So I had 11, five with, I said it wrong before it was 11, five with seven, eight, nine um, as my backups. And then of course it comes 11, five key. And it was like a hundred bucks for 50 cents. I mean, I could have, I could have turned my whole day around with a with a small trifecta saver, but I uh, I, I I was in the exacta and I and I ended up uh, I ended up blowing it. I will say this: uh, not using Tiergen, maybe possibly playing that little you know dollar three horse exacta box for six bucks. I don't know why I just decided to do the uh, the two horse. I I think it's from all the uh, the people on Twitter, you know those value prophesizers oh you can't box horses because you're leaving money on the table but to me if i'm making money in the long run playing exacta boxes maybe i'm only six percent return on investment compared to 12 and i know yeah we're playing a high takeout game but like i said last week on the show if it helps your mental capacity and you're still winning not just winning as much as you could you just have to slowly learn to find those spots where okay yeah maybe this spot isn't where i need that third horse here where you have a favor going off at three to one and not eight to five i think i just misstepped here on an exacta that paid for a dollar thirty bucks would have made me a $24 profit. Yeah, it, the exacta doesn't feel quite as overlaid to me. I mean, I did think this was open enough that I probably, well, obviously you see how I played it. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't I didn't bother with, I could have easily played my two backups in an exacta. And my logic was in this race that the nine to two over the three to one wasn't going to pay enough. But it just depends on what your opinion is. I mean, boxing it's rare that it's going to be the most efficient way to play boxing a three horse exacta, but you can certainly do it and then weight the combinations. There's nothing like inherently wrong with doing that. If that's what your opinion is, if you're, if you're looking to make a box exacta with three or more horses, every race that is going to bleed you out, but situate, you got to look at every race as its own puzzle and its own situation. And, and don't forget all of a sudden, a, a box, I no longer look at it really as a box if you're then weighting the combinations and you're playing the horses you like more and at least trying to get some money back if the less preferred combination comes in. Preservation of capital, it's something Sean Borman speaks so 
eloquently about when we have him on the various shows of the network. But it's a, a very underrated, important tool in a horse player's toolbox. That is all the time we have for today. Stay tuned for more tips from Barry Meadow. But Pete, before we let you go, where can people find you on social media? What do we have going on around the network? Oh, my goodness. Big announcements coming this week, re-debuting uh, some industry-related shows. You'll be hearing more about that. We've got In the Money Plus, Rockin' and Rollin', Matt Vagvolgi, providing written content. We're going to be doing summaries of... Uh, all the shows, essentially, all the pick shows. So you don't have to take notes yourself. You can just go back and look at our look at our pick summary. And we're going to be doing extra podcasts as part of In the Money Plus. You can do it for ten bucks a month, or I think it's a hundred for the year. Best way to get info about that is via the newsletter in the slash email. We'd love to have uh, people support us and and get you involved, maybe uh, Spencer, in in doing some of those extra shows. The the idea is. It's several different things. I love the idea of having some content that's like completely independent of sponsors. It definitely mm-hmm. allows for just that little extra bit of, of frankness in all matters pertaining to racing and, and a way to, to give us power just sort of as horse players. Um, so that's one thing I'm excited about. And I'm also just excited about the, the excuse to make extra content that doesn't need to be sponsored. So let's just say there's a last-minute carryover or, or something uh, or, or a last-minute announced mandatory payout day. Now we can do those shows, and, th- and that's something I'd love to to get you involved in as one of the guests. Some of those shows I'll probably be a pure host and have a couple of guests on um, just depending on what the workflow is like. But we're going to have a chance to do a lot of extra cool things, and we hope that uh, a bunch of your listeners will come along for the ride. Best way to keep in touch with me at looms boldly on Twitter and just keep up with the various goings on on in the money subscribe rate and review wherever you can. It really helps other people find the show and helps us find our niche in the industry. So we can all keep creating great content for you. Like Spencer's doing right here on Redboard rewind. You know me, Pete guest host. I'm another tool in the toolbox for the, co- for the company, for the group. Really excited to have you on again. Good wishes for the rest of the year. Cheers, my friend. And now, here's Barry Meadow with another tip from the Skeptical Handicapper, available at TR Publishing and Amazon.com. This is Barry Meadow with this week's Skeptical Handicapper tip. Even though betting the top trainers doesn't result in a cash deluge, betting the bottom trainers is worse, much worse. We looked at numerous categories comparing trainers with more than 20% wins during the past 365 days versus trainers with fewer than 10% wins, requiring only that each trainer started at least 100 horses. The Allberger total, with more than 134,000 starters for each of the two, showed that the 20% plus trainers won 22% with a 0.80 return per dollar, while the less than 10% trainers won only 8% with a 0.68 return. Certain categories seemed to cry out for top trainers, and it was here that the leading trainer shined. The ROI of horses claimed last race, for instance, was 21 cents higher per dollar in favor of the top trainers, with a win percentage edge of 25 to 10. First-time Lasix horses did 18 cents per dollar better, and the win percentage was 19 for the top guys compared with just 6 for the lesser trainers. A trainer change to a plus 20% horseman resulted in a 24 to 9 win percentage advantage and a 14 cents per dollar ROI difference. 
We checked numerous other factors and the high percentage of trainers thoroughly dominated nearly every angle. The lesson is clear. No matter what factor you're looking at, avoid the lowest ranked trainers. Anyone who isn't winning at least 10% of his starts brings up unpleasant issues of competence. I'm Barry Meadow, author of The Skeptical Handicapper, using data and brains to win at the racetrack. Thanks again to all the wonderful listeners out there. My special guest, PTF, Barry Meadow, for those wonderful tips each and every week. This show is been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Pierre Thomas Porantel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time.